Hi, welcome to Residential Spread. I'm Molly Slavin, and I'm here today with Eric Lewis. Eric, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, exciting news yesterday. I feel a lot better about our country now, but I feel like I'll start being disappointed again quickly enough. Yes, and um, we are recording the day after the inauguration. So Eric is um, referring to the actually successful transfer of power that happened yesterday, which I think maybe blew us all away a little bit, but in a good way. Not to put words in your mouth, Eric. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, I was shockingly relieved by what seems like it should just be completely normal. I would agree. Um, also here is Josh Cohen. How are you, Josh? Big same. Big, big relieved energy over here. Um, feeling a real release of tension like Eric. We can, you know, I, I can go back to being disappointed in the center left, but that's a very good feeling to have. We got two brand new Democratic Georgia senators, so uh, I'm, fe- I'm feeling relieved. That's right. They also got sworn in yesterday, I think at 4.30, so a few hours after um, after President Biden. So it was just a, a fun afternoon. Also here is Alex Edwards. How are you, Alex? I'm good. I'm actually um, a more optimistic today um, or maybe starting last night than I was even yesterday morning because one of the very first things that President Biden did was demand the resignation of the anti-union attorney who was the head of the National Labor Review Board under Trump. And when, I can't remember this man's name, it's truly not important, but when this man who hates unions and was trying to like completely decimate the infrastructure of unions in the United States, when he refused to resign, Biden said, cool, you're fucking fired. Bye. That was so great. Yeah, that was great. And I feel great that about it. He was trespassing on federal property at that point. Yep. I, you know, like Josh, I'm looking forward to being disappointed by Joe Biden, but I also would never want to disappoint Joe Biden. Like he has that real, do you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. I'm, 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 close enough in history, like in my recent past to having been like a West Wing fangirl, um, Mm -hmm. that part of me was like, yeah, you know what? You serve at the pleasure of the president. Get the fuck out of here. That's right. Right? Yes. And then I immediately interrogated, you know, like what my, my like attraction to power and power structures was in feeling like that. But I did have the feeling for a moment. Yes. Yeah, by the way, we're, we're all really fun at parties. I don't know if that's come across. You <laughs> <laughs> must. But uh, last but not least, uh, Corey Gergen. Corey, how are you today? Hi. Uh, I'm, you know, similarly cautiously enthused. Um, I, I'm also very happy right now because my tech is working for the moment. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, you know, yesterday was um, – I was moved in ways that I wasn't expecting – uh, you know, that Amanda Gorman poem, um, was, I thought, fabulous. And like, as an 18th centuryist, I read a lot of occasional poetry and most of it sucks, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> so I was, I was, uh, impressed and moved. 
It took, me, uh, and, it took me a long moment to realize that when you said occasional poetry, you meant poetry written for or on an occasion rather oh, than just like poetry that happens every once in a while. <laughs> I, am a, I am a literary scholar who only reads poetry occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the poem was great. I am not too proud to admit that I cried when Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. Uh, <laughs> I, I legitimately did. I got through I, I got through Garth, but then um, and I didn't see it last night. But uh, I woke up this morning and and my dad had sent me a link to um, the video of Bruce Springsteen playing. Hmm. I don't and even know that. that. I'm a big Bruce fan. Uh, yeah, go look this up. He performed last night, um, okay. or he performed at night. I guess they could have recorded it at any time. But um, yeah, that one got me this morning. I teared up a little bit, and I. You know, call me corny if you want, but uh, I, I stand the boss. I did Garth Brooks, so I don't think there's any judgment here. Um, anyway, we are term-limited contingent faculty teaching humanities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Like other schools, Georgia Tech has experienced massive disruptions, shifts, and changes due to the spread of coronavirus. We have now been teaching and researching in a pandemic for nearly a year, and things are no, are no more stable now than they were at the start. On this show, we investigate the sources and consequences of the policies that have led us here and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of the precariat. So school is now back in session. And guess what? It probably shouldn't be. (laughs) Today, despite it being a new day in America, as President Biden declared, Uh, We're staring down a terrifying prospect, that is, new coronavirus variants that appear to be even more contagious than the original flavor. And yet, higher education is pretending like the old protocols, you know, the ones that weren't very successful last semester anyway, are going to be enough to continue, quote unquote, to keep us all safe. So that's what we're going to delve into in today's episode. But first, as always, let's do a temperature check. Yeah, so our temperature today is 50%, or I should say approximately 50%. And uh, that number is uh, comes from estimations of um, how much more infectious uh, this new variant that has been found in 50 countries to this point, um, including the United States. Um, a recent article from Vox uh, about this new variant uh, states, quote, the advantage of the new, uh, the advantage the new variants carry seems to be that in any given situation where people are gathered, they'll infect more people, an estimate of 30 to 70 percent more in the case of the B117 variant first identified in Britain, which has now been identified in 50 countries. Uh, so um, what do you make of this, uh, this new variant? How is it affecting um, the way you go about your lives and, and the way you go about uh, teaching right now? I want to say first off that I'm so fucking pissed off for the rest of the world. Um, I'm pissed off at America. (laughs) Uh, I'm pissed off, especially at the the nightmare person who just vacated um, the Oval Office, because I I, I think if I understand the science correctly, um, part of what is going on here is that globally we were not able to get a handle on coronavirus fast enough. Um, and because it has spread so rampantly, um, it has been able now to mutate and, and 
uh, transform into some of these different variations. Um, and had we been poised to actually deal with a public health crisis, this may not have happened or it may not have happened to the extent that it seems to now be happening. Um, and it makes me mad. Yeah, we're terrible. <laughs> really awful. And I feel like we need to be apologizing to the rest of the world um, pretty consistently. But on this um, on this also, certainly, um, especially with the new you know, hopefully a, 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 you know, an increased vaccine rollout or a speeded up vaccine rollout. It sounds like that might not even um, make that much of a difference. You know, there are some theories now that because the coronavirus has been allowed to spread unabated for so long, uh, it may sort of have had the freedom to transform in such a way that vaccines may not be as useful as we had previously hoped. So it's a real bad situation we got the world into. But we still have the freedom to dine indoors. And isn't that what America was founded on? When they threw all that tea into the harbor. Yeah. They, 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 I wish I could drink this inside. Yeah, exactly. So it's a little in the fact, harbor yes. it goes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually a protest against outdoor tea service. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a small, a little known fact of uh, U.S. history. <laughs> I'm glad my joke landed finally. No, it's just ridiculous. You're so right, Alex, just in terms of, um, I mean, at one point the fear was just we'll get through it. And there was that whole idea of, oh, if everyone gets sick, they'll develop natural immunity and everyone will be fine. But that's ignoring the fact that viruses aren't static things. Viruses mm -hmm. change, they develop, they evolve. Every time they infect someone, that genetic lottery is run again, and they may learn how to be more infectious. They may learn how to be whatever way they can get better. Uh, I mean, as I was reading about these new variants, uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, the old board game Pandemic, in which you play the role of a killer virus trying to wipe out the world's population and thinking about how in future versions of that game, if that is a thing that ever happens, they really need to build in really dumb politicians who refuse to acknowledge the virus. Like that would be a really lucky get out of jail free card. That would help you win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Are we sure that the, that, that the world is still like happening or are we unsure? Like, have we disproven the possibility that, in fact, we are all just um, on the board of a game of pandemic? I firmly believe we are all on the board of a game of pandemic. None of this has felt real to me at any point. I am very open to being convinced this is some kind of simulation. Uh, everything that happens further convinces me of this. It feels like a fever dream. I would be relieved to learn that. I, <laughs> uh, I go the other direction. Like, maybe at this point. Uh, but I go the other direction. Like, the weirder and the worse our response is, the more I'm convinced that these are just uh, real people making terrible decisions. That's fair. I'm just not – I'm, like, I'm not entirely sure that the world didn't end when David Bowie died. Um, and everything that's happened since then is just like us trapped in hell. <laughs> Maybe. No, two. Is that two? 
I'm sorry, I was muting myself when I laughed. Yeah, I'm, I'm muting so you can't hear my laughs. I was on a plane when David Bowie died, and like I turned on my phone and got the notification. So sure, that plane crashed over the Atlantic. I'll buy. I'll buy that. I didn't actually land. <laughs> this is all a Jacob's Ladder scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for unmuting. Um, yeah, it really makes me think of um, the the story, like the history of the Ebola breakout. Um, which happened while Obama was president. Um, at one point, my partner related all this like history that he had, had read about this to me, and I'm going to not remember all of it exactly. But basically, like when Ebola was like, oh, hey, this is a thing, like this is a, a you know, um, a public health crisis in, I don't remember where it began, in Africa specifically, um, regardless, he Obama like did all of these things immediately that didn't get a lot of attention, but they basically like saved us from having an Ebola outbreak in the United States. Like there were nurses who had flown back to the U.S. who were potentially carrying Ebola and they were like quarantined immediately at the airport. Um, and basically like it's it's a it was sort of like a Y2K scenario, right, where like because the government moved so quickly to eradicate the threat of Ebola in the U.S. We actually don't know how close we came um, to having like like a really horrible um, pandemic experience with the Ebola virus. Um, and I always I just think about that and I think about like what a competent government can do and not even need to take credit for, but like what they can accomplish and and just to follow up on that, the guy who was spearheading that effort, Ron Klain, is Biden's chief of staff. So, oh, okay. you know, one one reason for optimism on the on the vaccine slash pandemic front is that the Biden transition team has been planning for this and they have the, the people they put in charge to run their COVID response are like the best, most capable people. Of course, on the other hand, the Obama transition team in their handoff uh, to the Trump people, they identified uh, a hurricane, a pandemic, and a cyber attack as like the three most uh, prominent, you know, threats that we might face in the incoming administration, uh, all of which happened and all of which the Trump administration was woefully unprepared for. So, I mean, kind of circling back to our, our cautious optimism about the new administration, they are going to take this very seriously. They are going to ramp up you know, federal, uh, I think Biden's signing another like 10 executive orders relating to the pandemic and the vaccine today, um, as opposed to the, you know, the, the bold, creative Trump strategy of doing nothing and just telling the states and county health departments to figure out how to distribute the vaccine most effectively. Um, that shockingly has not been terribly effective. So, I mean, one good thing is that the, the same people who helped kind of prevent that Ebola outbreak from really happening in the U.S. are, are now going to be tackling this problem. And that is like encouraging, but also it's a lot easier to stop the crisis when Pandora's box is only open like a millimeter for sure versus for when sure. it's been like thrown wide open, which is kind of where we seem to be now. Yeah, I mean, cases are are way worse now than a year ago, right? I mean, we've allowed things, at least here in Georgia, 
you know, so like we're all back in school. I think all of us are teaching remotely, I assume. No. No? Are you guys well, in the classroom? I mean, I'm teaching hybrid. Yeah. Uh, I'm teaching hybrid, which, you know, uh, requires a certain number of scheduled in-person sessions, but we can kind of do whatever we want with them. Oh, so, yeah. I'm teaching I'm not, hybrid, too, but I'm not. Yeah. I, okay. I just mean, are you are you planning on, on having them show up in person this semester? Uh, no. I will come to campus the number of times that my department has told me I should, uh, but I'm not expecting any of my students to meet me there. Yeah. I think you would have <laughs> to be psychotic to – I mean, this has been a, a thread that we've talked about the entire time, right, which is that the 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 numbers are only getting worse. They, they're, you know, they've only been getting worse since March um, when higher ed first kind of uh, quickly shut down, right? And all that's happening is that we're getting, like, more and more um, sort of immune to the idea that we're in danger, um, we're facing that like pandemic fatigue as they call it. Right. Um, but like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you like look at the numbers now, even versus what they were in July or August of last year when we were arguing that it wasn't safe to be in, in the classroom. I don't know how you look at the numbers now and think like, yeah, this is completely fine and we're doing great. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's right. And I don't know how you look at these new variants to come back around to that topic and decide that we're going to go forward with school with the exact same protocols we had in the fall, right? Um, because as, as we were saying then, you know, the social distancing protocols for classrooms, the masking protocols were like good, but not adequate, right? And now they are even less adequate, I guess. Um, and yet there's been very little um, guidance about kind of how we should, those people who are doing things on campus should sort of uh, respond to these new challenges and this sort of newly. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard or read literally anyone from the administrative side of things at our institution even mention the fact that there are new variations of coronavirus that are uh, more transmissible. Right. Again, to, to kind of come back to the science of it and explain why it matters, the Vox article that we um, will link in the show notes, you know, they're very careful to note the new variates, variants of coronavirus don't seem to be more deadly, but they are more transmissible. And in a lot of ways, that's worse because cases will snowball at a faster rate. They grow um, at a faster exponential rate, which means more really, really sick people, um, more strain on hospitals, which, as we know, like they're already our hospitals in the U.S. are already like at complete breaking point um, and then more deaths is what's going to happen because it will just spread to more and more people. Yeah. And would, it will also, again, mean this thing that keeps happening that we aren't talking about very much, which is that there are other preventable deaths that will happen because mm -hmm. of the strain of resources, because of how long it takes um, to get an ambulance for an ambulance to find a spot in the hospital and, and all of the other things. Yeah. And, and the rationing of care, right? Like if you have an overstuffed um, ICU, then you have to start as a hospital, you have to start making decisions about who is really sick enough to get that intensive care and who isn't. And the, the um, 
head of Grady Hospital here, which is our sort of like, um, oh, how do I want to say this? It's not our public hospital, but it's like the one that you default to if you. Um, I've heard it referred to as Atlanta's safety net hospital. Safety net hospital. Thank yeah, you. That's or, perfect. Or right. The so tra- the trauma center. Right. If you don't have a sort of hospital that you want to go to, if you don't have a specific, if you don't have health insurance, if you are um, unhoused or um, maybe your immigration status is is up for uh, question or you're worried about that, Grady is sort of the the place that catches all of those kinds of um, emergency situations. Uh, And the head of Grady has said, like, they, they are rationing care. They're stuffed to the brim with patients and are having to make hard decisions about who gets care and who doesn't. One good thing is that Johnson and Johnson has a vaccine that the results of their clinical trials should be coming out soon. And I think that's a one shot vaccine instead of the, the Mm. two shot, um, the two, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines Um, and AstraZeneca also a little bit delayed behind that. So, I mean, one good thing is that, New vaccines will be coming out, which should increase the supply. Uh, but that's all premise on the, the idea that we can get that critical mass of people, you know, get it out there um, at an even faster rate, right, to keep up with the fact that the new variants are more contagious. Um, so, you know, it's a real good news, bad news situation. I'm not sure. I haven't gotten the sense from any of my students that they really want to be in person. I don't know if you guys have either, but um, it just seems so crazy that we have an NBA season going on. We have K through 12 schools going back. We have universities going back. We still have indoor dining. We still have, you know, way too many businesses open in person. Um, But I think it's, it's that pandemic fatigue. People are just ready. Like in my wife's office, they keep, it's open. They want everybody there. They keep having like someone who's exposed to COVID and they have to be like, okay, no one come in for the next two weeks. And then after that two weeks, it's like, yeah, let's all get back in the office. And I just, I don't understand the lack of concern for these high rates of transmission. Yeah, I don't either. It's that like, what's that um, really stupid cliche about like madness is like, doing the same thing again and again and, and assuming there'll be different results. (laughs) Yeah. And yet that's what tech is trying to do. Right. I mean, we are in a much more dangerous situation now and we just seem to be doing more or less the same thing we're doing in the fall um, with no additional guidance or support or help. Yeah. Or more than the same thing. And given that the push is have more in-person sessions, make them regular, make them more meaningful. Uh, I mean, that's been the push for the spring semester since at some point in the fall. Uh, so it's not just doing the same thing. It's doing something worse. I think it's worth stressing that, sure, this is anecdotal data, but every student I have talked to has said, if my professor holds something in person, like, I'm not going, you know? Um, It seems like it's happening, like, this push for in-person is happening, like, completely against students' own will. And I just find it so baffling. I I will just say quickly, I do have a few students who seem to want um, some, like, there is some demand out there. I don't think it's enough to sort of justify the way that uh, administration's been talking about it. 
Um, and I don't get the sense that the students who have expressed that to me are like angry that there isn't more in person. Um, but I do like I I've been asking like in class surveys and stuff um, about these things. And I do have like four or five students in each of my sections and my sections are like anywhere from 20 to 24 right now. Um, so like 15 to 20 percent uh, are at least expressing some interest in doing something in person. Uh, now, whether that transfers over to them, like actually showing up, uh, say, you know, a month from now uh, is a different question. Right. I think asking at the start of the semester, you get a lot more ambition than <laughs> uh, <laughs> you'd get in practice when you actually uh, do the in-person event. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's also worth, again, stressing that even if more students were clamoring for in-person or showing up for it, right, that doesn't mean they should necessarily get it, of course, right? Right. That's what I was going to say to come back to this. Like, our students aren't public health experts, right? Students, I mean, anyone, a lot of people want to do things that are bad for them. It doesn't mean that we should make it as easy as possible for them to do it. Yeah, they're not customers, despite what the neoliberal model of education would have them believe. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the sort of Georgia Tech response um, and protocols, the old protocols from last semester, which are still in place, um, we actually just recently got a document that is a sort of packet of the summary of um, lessons learned that were put together by a, a committee at Georgia Tech that was dedicated to research continuity. Um, of course, Tech is a huge research university, uh, so this is not necessarily about um, like the teaching side of things or that the academic side of things, but it kind of encapsulates that because so much of what we do is like predicated on the, the research and the teaching kind of going hand in hand and the undergraduate research experience, which is big at Georgia Tech, et cetera. Um, and so I read this. I don't know if you guys got a chance to, but I, I took one for the team, as I always do read through this document. Um, and this document was released two days ago. Um, that's the date, the sort of like um, initial release date that's on it. Um, and here are some of the gems that were learned by the research continuity team. Um, going forward, they believe that Georgia Tech should quote, develop and adhere to guiding sets of principles when developing policies and procedures. That's the first one. Thoughts? <laughs> I mean, it seems, in, it seems implied. Uh, it's an odd, uh, it's an odd addition, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you ever develop a policy that's not, um, guided by a set of principles, right? Whether or not you uh, have explicitly stated them, like we can guess what your principles are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just another situation where uh, I'm going to guess there weren't a ton of, there wasn't a ton of humanities input on the drafting of, of these resolutions. I believe, well, I believe that um, one of the key members of the working group was uh, our own Janet Murray, um, who, you know, is a humanities person. Um, Janet rules. In our, she I, does. I'm going I'm to guess that the preponderance of the committee, uh, there's <laughs> no way, there is no way she would have written a sentence like that um, 
So I'm going to guess that she was she was outvoted or had limited ability to affect the the wording of it. This is basically like saying you should think about something before you think about something. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I mean, on the other hand, I think it's a kind of a backdoor way of saying, like, you, we can't just be making decisions willy nilly. Like, we should actually have, like, uh, guidelines that, that shape what we do. And in Janet's case, I know that she's huge on pushing for science to be the thing right. that's our guiding. Right. right. That could be, that could be using, using the garbage language against them. <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, I was going to tentatively propose a reparative reading because most of the communication from them since the summer began with some kind of like empty statement about how they're listening to all science and following the evidence. And then it would proceed into like telling us to do things that goes expressly against the science and evidence. Um, so yeah. Oh, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. That is actually a topic that's tackled specifically in this report. (laughs) Excellent. Well then let's get into it. Okay. So, okay. Going on from there, here's some of the other um, really uh, gem like lessons uh, that the research continuity working group um, gleaned from this last, I guess really technically two semesters because we were um, all remote over the summer and then we were, you know, somewhat split mixed over in the fall. Um, Here we go. As students appear to spend greater time in their residences than in classrooms, GT housing and campus facilities need to consider increasing interdepartmental communication. (laughs) What? This was my favorite favorite because of the first line. Like, as students appear to spend greater time in their residences than in classrooms. Well, first of all, of course they do. The vast majority of their classes are online. They're in their dorm rooms taking their classes. But second of all, it's that's true even in a normal semester where everything's happening face to face, right? Like, I mean, assuming yes. that you sleep in your residence, that's what I'm saying you sleep you in are <laughs> you are not in a classroom. You are it, a- you're not in multiple classrooms for eight plus hours a day. Right. And you sleep in your dorm room. You get ready for the day in your dorm room. You probably do a fair amount of studying in your dorm room. It's obviously that's where you're going to spend the most amount of your time. And it's like treated as this like revelation. Yeah. Like, oh, oops. We actually, we spent all this effort like thinking about how to make classrooms safe. And we didn't spend any effort thinking about how to make dorms safe. And oopsie, guess what? Students spend most of the time in their dorms. Where they're, I mean, I don't know how big the average dorm is at Georgia Tech, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're around a lot more people when they're in their dorm than they are when they're in a classroom, right? Yeah. I'll go into that limb. <laughs> I imagine that's right. Corey, what were you going to say? I know you were trying to say something. Oh, I, no, like that, that was my first response was Molly's, which is like, they, that's normal that you spend more time in your house than in, in your classrooms. But I, I'm a little bit also disturbed by this like sub point, which is that GT housing and GT campus facilities don't communicate. Um, Like I, you know, we've talked enough about this stuff on the show that I'm not like Pollyanna-ish about like what campus housing is about and what it does, but like campus housing is a campus facility, right? Like shouldn't, shouldn't that communication already be normal and vibrant and active and common? One would think. But apparently not. Apparently not. Um, 
Okay, so moving on, here's an, another gem for you. Um, one of the lessons they learned is that we should remain cautious about increasing space density. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, consider increasing density to those who are disproportionately impacted by the general density measures. I don't even know what that means. That's so thick with garbage language. I guess if people are more isolated, then we should give like increase their density rather than continuing to increase the density of people who are already in greater density. None of this means anything. <laughs> um, in along with this bullet point, though, this is all one sort of thing, right? We should explore the possibility of cost-effective production of other kinds of testing, such as antigen testing, and we should have in place a plan to ramp down density rapidly if conditions on the ground merit such a change. I'm sorry, we don't have a plan in place for that? Right? I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, and, and just, again, just to be absolutely clear in translating this, uh, if conditions on the ground, that means a spike in cases, right? I mean, that's just obviously what they're talking about. So, you know, you're projecting a scenario where you're cautiously like, yeah, let's have more people in the same spaces and then cases spike and you're like, oh, we need to reverse course. We need to have fewer people in the same spaces. So, yeah, a, a plan in place would be good if we have a big spike on campus. Yeah, well, but also like in the community, which we do have, right? Right, right, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. I'm also a little bit confused about the, the stuff about testing in there, which, first of all, it doesn't really fit into this paragraph in a way that I can tell. Second of all, th we there was no shortage of tests in the fall. Right. Like, I don't I don't recall it. Like, I we spent the entire fall encouraging more people to get tested more often. Right. I, I don't understand why we're why we're complicating the testing system when the problem wasn't supply of testing the problem was demand like we we got a lot of buy-in but not full buy-in from the community on the testing right well I, it, what's weird here is that this bullet point seems to suggest that um that the testing is the number one like safety protocol when it's not right yes testing of course of course is, is just a way to have an accurate um, picture of how the virus is spreading, which is in itself unsafe. <laughs> right. And it, and it reminds me a bit of our discussions in relation to dashboards in terms of making testing central in a way that it shouldn't be just in terms of a condition on the ground is new, more infectious variants. But this bullet point is treating the only, uh, the only conditions as testing. Mm -hmm. So if we know that cases are going to spread, that cases are going to increase, that doesn't matter. We have to wait until they already have. Right. That only counts as a condition on the ground, which just seems needlessly complicated and foolhardy. I will say, I don't know if it's directly related to these, um, these nuggets of wisdom that we learned, but I do know that some spaces on campus that have not been open are now opening, of course, under, you know, certain COVID restrictions, but like certain spaces in the library, uh, like media lab spaces where you can use computers or, or various things that have been closed are now opening, uh, I think, starting on Monday with reduced capacity, of course, but, you know, 
if the whole idea here is basically like, yeah, let's assume that we can have more people in smaller spaces and then be ready when something goes bad, it seems like it might be better to just remain in our more cautious mode to begin with and not let people back into those spaces. I take this bullet point about remaining cautious um, to be a specifically anti-USG bullet point because I think there's been a lot of pressure from USG to increase density um, on campuses and bring more more and more people back. Um, and so I read this as a without them really specifically saying it, um, kind of like raising the warning flag that like we we can't just be ready to willy nilly increase density. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, I, like I buy that. That makes sense. Have, but like the, like, we should have a plan. Oh, really? Should we, should we have a plan? Don't you think we should have had a plan? Well, and I, I, I think that's a really good point about the USG, right? Like this is a document with a lot of audiences, right? Yeah. Um, and I like, you know, we, um, criticize the Georgia Tech administration a lot and, you know, they deserve it, but there is this weird thing where they're trying to triangulate things, right? Because there's this like, there's like this like uh, bigger boss, right? Beyond them, right? Above them, right? The enemy is up, as um, our friend yeah. Ken Lithicum recently uh, said to us uh, yeah. about something else, right? Uh, the the enemy is up, uh, and um, so yeah, there is maybe this way that some of this garbage language is meant to like signal one thing to us and another thing to students and a third thing to the board of regents. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm, I'm getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) We're still, we're still working our way towards that. Um, So here's another lesson that we've somehow um, only now learned, which is that we should develop a plan to accommodate the fact that eating requires people to remove their masks. That's an incredible sentence. I love it so much. <laughs> this is the kind um, of thing, you know how every once in a while, not every once in a while, actually pretty frequently, on Fox News, they'll be like, we're funding this scientist at a university to, like, find out that birds are endangered or something. And it's, like, completely obvious, like, scientific thing that's been, like, funded. That's, frankly, what this is. <laughs> it is. You're absolutely right. But again, like, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for the leadership of Georgia Tech that we didn't already have a plan that takes into account the fact that eating requires people to remove their fucking masks. Well, do you, do you remember, like, late in the fall, we, they announced that fund for, um, like, instructors can request, like, small, um, grants to, like, do something with their students essentially to increase community and and engagement and things like that. And one of their recommendations was like, we'll get food for your, for your class. And then like a day or two later, they had to announce like follow up with a, with a clarification that like we can buy food that your students can take from you in person and then go somewhere else to eat. (laughs) Right. Exactly. They were like, yeah, Oh, we'll, we'll buy you guys pizza, but like you can't eat the pizza around each other and that again i actually think was was janet murray being like um the fuck 
astonishing that people don't think about this much like the the second part of this bullet point is much like Notre Dame. Um, they propose in January, the installment of outdoor tents with heating and maybe free coffee to incentivize people to eat in well ventilated areas. Good. Good job, guys. I did get strong Notre Dame vibes from that. Right. We have a, a condensed population of some of the smartest people in the world. And it took us that long to realize that maybe we needed to give people somewhere to eat safely outdoors. Like, how is that possible? (laughs) Yes. And there's, you know, there's a lot of outdoor space on this campus and we're just, we aren't really planning to use it at all in any kind of like organized designed way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild that it took until now. And we had like, it's very hot at the start of the semester, but like the fall was nice. We had an exceptionally nice fall this year. Um, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things could have been happening outside to like create engagement and, and things like that. And we just, yeah, we're deciding to do it now in like the worst time for Atlanta weather during the entire school year. But like even taking into account, okay, like weather conditions aren't always great. Right. Um, There are several places called theme parks in a state that's even hotter than Georgia, and they have figured out how to successfully have people be comfortable and safe outdoors. True. That's a great point. You just put up cooling stations. Literally any music festival that's ever been held has already dealt with this. The information on how to do this exists. I don't know. I don't know. It's mind blowing. Um, anyway, so finally, now to get to the really the real sort of meat of this, like um, many different audiences for this document. Right. Um, th- there's a series of like observations and then recommendations that are contained in this report that that were generated from um, interviews with subject matter experts. SMEs, as they're called. Um, and the one that I pulled out that was really um fascinating to me was that um, apparently it took a lot of time for Institute Communications, that is the office at Georgia Tech that that oversees communications about the Institute as a whole. Um, It took them a while. They learned along the way, according to this report, what messages needed to be reviewed by the University System of Georgia and what did not. So over time, approvals on the messaging became more efficient. Um, They go on to note that, quote, the politicization of public health during the COVID epidemic, and in particular, anti-scientific messages within and beyond the state of Georgia, posed a particular problem for communications during this period, delaying leadership from mandating the wearing of masks until early July. That's a fascinating sentence that is not passive voice, but it is passive voice somehow. Um. This also, they note uh, these anti-scientific messages within and beyond Georgia caused confusion uh, when institute leadership was unable to communicate in a timely manner about matters of public health, disease prevention, and safety. And this resulted in members of the community perceiving Georgia Tech as abandoning its core values of scientific reliability and technical problem solving in the public interest. So that's an observation that was made. What do you guys think about that? I'm resisting the urge to diagram all of these sentences, but I'll (laughs) let other people weigh in more substantively. Well, if you missed our episode on the USG 
Board of Regents. I definitely recommend going back and listening to that. It is noteworthy that there are no SMEs. There are no subject matter experts on the USG board, right? These are business people. Uh, these are real estate people. There's like one person in education. Uh, so there, there's obviously like the scientists at tech uh, are not communicating with other scientists on the USG, right? They're, they're communicating with business people. And the other thing I would note is that early on in, in either March or April, or maybe it was early May, early on, our president Cabrera and the other uh, presidents of the USG schools, there was just this huge thing about how great the USG system is because it allows precisely for rapid communication among the presidents, among the schools. It allows for the exchange of ideas and expertise and information. So the idea that in however subtle and, and, and passive voicey of a way they're saying that communication was a huge huge obstacle to getting in front of the pandemic really undercuts the whole reason for the USG to be ostensibly is better coordination among the institutions, uh, whether in times of crisis or in, in happier days of just collaborating on, on different kinds of projects. They're supposed to be like a phone call away from all these other presidents and, uh, and having all these resources and the ability to deploy strategies that have worked, uh, that appears not to have been the case. Yeah, I think what you're thinking of is the letter from the 26 presidents, um, which came out, I actually think, in July as a direct response to um, the letter that Janet Murray and some of her colleagues um, spearheaded that uh, demanding that Georgia Tech follow the science, right? That That's was that right. sort of like viral right. letter that, that got, uh, you know, um, thousands, tens of thousands of signatures and, and is really the reason that the mask mandate ended up happening. Um, but yeah, they, they really specifically, right, all those presidents signed off on this letter saying like, no, the communication is the, the, the best part of being part of USG um, when that's clearly not true. And, and this report confirms it. <laughs> it says it very specifically, right? The politicization of public health during the epidemic, and in particular, anti-scientific messages within and beyond the state of Georgia. That's a lot of words to say our governor is an asshole. And it's not our fault, right? <laughs> right. Um, none of this is our fault, as in we being Georgia Tech USG. Right, right. So their recommendation based on this observation um, is that communic institute communications should work on identifying where to go for which types of messages, as in like who whose approval do they need before they can publish a message. Um, communications, I'm reading directly from this now, communications should be sensitive to the fact that repeating messages that directly contradict scientific public health policies undermines confidence in Georgia Tech leadership. Although leadership should avoid confrontational stances, it's important that communications find a way to assure the Georgia Tech community that Georgia Tech is basing its decisions, excuse me, its decision making on values that are strongly identified with its core mission, such as respect for science, technology, and ethics. This will require strategies for managing potential conflicts between external and Georgia Tech voices. End quote. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of remarkable as a document. Yeah, yeah. Again, like this this passive voice, right, um, 
it's it's not important that Georgia Tech actually make decisions based on values like respect for science. Um, but it's important that institute communications can find a way to assure us that they're doing so. Right. We all just need to be assured. Yes. And also no one. No one realized that Georgia Tech was not making decisions based on science, but we perceived that that was the case. Right. Yeah. So this is, I mean, that's where we stand right now, right? We're, we're, we're looking at potentially this um, B117 variant of COVID-19 being the most predominant strain of coronavirus in the U.S. by March. Um, it's somewhere around 50% more contagious uh, at a time when, you know, as we are recording this, um, up to 5,000 Americans are dying per day of the coronavirus right now. Um, it, we are already like our caseload is is much, much worse, <clears throat> excuse me, than it was in March of 2020 um, when we closed the schools, than it was in June and July of 2020 when we raised a giant ruckus um, and fuss about how dangerous the fall was going to be. It's worse than it was throughout the fall. Um, and here we are just now realizing that, like, we should let people dine outdoors because um, they have to take their masks off to eat things. Um, and thinking about public image still, right? What, what Georgia Tech's public image is rather than, um, how to actually prevent the spread of coronavirus on campus. I hope you guys enjoyed your, your moment of feeling optimistic. <laughs> hey, uh, just, uh, we beat Clemson in basketball last night. Oh, yes, we all got an email about it. And I oh, thought, I didn't see that. Do you, have your, do you have your finger on the pulse of what matters to me? <laughs> after, I think, yeah. after multiple games were canceled due to, um, due to coronavirus? Um, coronavirus precautions, yeah. Mm, precautions, exactly. yeah. <laughs> all you've done is remind me of the scary and terrible fact that basketball is still happening. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I shared this in a, a non-podcast um, format, but I have uh, students this semester who um, are participating in indoor track and field. Like, Terrific. What? <laughs> I, I, we're doing indoor track and field? That's unsafe. I didn't know we did that, period. Like, I didn't know that was a sport that was an option. <laughs> well, I also learned today that we have eSports. Um, one of my students plays on the Georgia Tech eSports team. I'm I assuming that's that. not D1. Yeah, no, I did not. I feel like that could be safe, though, because can't you just, yes. can't you just play from your own? That's, that's what we should be doing. Like, that should be what ESPN is covering. Like, I want to see um, I don't. I can't even think of an esport. Is Halo still an esport? Probably Overwatch. There you go. There you go. I want, <laughs> I want Overwatch championships uh, tomorrow. Do people still play Hearthstone like as an esport? Which that's truly wild because it's like a card game. <laughs> Love me some Hearthstone. Yeah. Um, you're right. This is listen. We have we've we've cracked the case of of college athletics. Um, you know how they always do this is probably going to end up in the Easter egg. Doesn't matter. Um, they like sports 
um, media will do things where like they have NHL players play NHL 19 or NHL 20. Like they, they play the most recent game of whatever it is that they do. Why are all sports not doing that? We could just have the NBA players play whatever the NBA game is right now. Yeah. There was some of that early on in all of this. Um, I think it's a brilliant idea. This is how we should be doing seasons. Yeah, I don't disagree. There was that thing, uh, the like, I don't know if the NBA was officially affiliated with it, but there was a thing where uh, various NBA players like played horse, but everybody was in their own home. Yeah, gym. that was awesome. I think they I love cool. this they idea. In their own. Like, like their kids were like like their kids would film them as they were playing. Like they, so like it was like like amateur camera angles and stuff. Um, oh, I love it. I think, and I. I, I say this knowing that, like, I watched and loved the NBA bubble season, but I think the NBA bubble season was so successful that, like, now they've decided that it doesn't matter what happens, and now we're just, like, all bets are off. Um, everything yeah, and, can happen, and, yeah. And to take a, a page from Nathan Coleman-Lamb, of course, um, it sport has been so normalized during the pandemic, right? Not only was the NBA bubble six season, season successful, but of course we had all these college sports happen, college football happened. Um, and so it's just the concept of like, will we play sp- sports during a pandemic and that's fine, has just become completely normalized to the point that, yeah, the NBA is like, well, it doesn't really matter, whatever. Right, yeah. And like when they saw the NFL and college football experiencing no consequences, uh mm-hmm. For the, for the people who, who run the league, not for the players themselves, uh, then right. yeah, then it became easy for the NBA to convince themselves that they could be playing, that they could be traveling around the nation to play rather than going back to the bubble. Um, right. I, I will say that I think, I you know, it's easy for me to say they should do the bubble as someone who wouldn't have to go into the bubble. Like, I don't think the bubble would have been sustainable for the players, but what we're doing now isn't sustainable for them either. Right. And, and of course, what the ripple effect of it is going to be is that college basketball is you know well the nba is playing and traveling so why can't college basketball play and travel and do everything right right while not playing while not paying their players and yeah right exactly cool i don't really know how to end this episode but we do need to wrap up um stuff's you know good but bad (laughs) (laughs) things are less bad but still not great (laughs) The motto of 2021. Yes. Yeah. A thought that crossed my mind was imagining the garbage language about sports that shouldn't be happening. Things like develop a plan to accommodate the fact that indoor track and field players, you know, breathe a lot while they're sprinting. (laughs) And that means that it increases the likely spread of aerosols, which may be problematic in terms of providing adequate social distancing. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much weasel language in, like, sports reporting right now around all of this stuff. Yeah, it's lots of, like, COVID consideration. And, like, I even fell into it earlier in this episode. I think I started talking like that because that's just how they're saying it. Well, everyone should always remember that the real enemy is up. (laughs) That's fantastic. That should be our tagline. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Bye.